This is the Santita Jackson Show. Good morning. Good morning. It's attorney Robert Patillo sitting in for Santita Jackson on the Santita Jackson Morning Show uh, on WCPT 820 Chicago, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, as well as AM 950 Radio Minneapolis, St. Paul, the voice of the progressive Minnesota against attorney Robert Patillo, host of People, Passion and Politics on News and Talk 1380 WAOK out of Atlanta, Georgia, sitting in for Santita this morning. Now, of course, start with some headlines. Weather this morning uh, in Chicago is 32 degrees about a uh, uh, cloudy overcast today zero percent chance of precipitation humidity so nine percent winds out of the northwest at eight miles per hour looking at a high of 35 degrees today uh, also we got to look at the weather coming out of Minneapolis uh, today where it's going to be a high of 31 zero percent chance of precipitation um, humidity 78 percent winds are going to be around seven miles per hour and of course we have some national news headlines that we are going to be touching on today that I really want a lot, uh, a lot of people to uh, be able to uh, look into of course we have to talk about the embattled Harvard University President Claudia Gay uh, being forced to resign from her position as the first African American president of, the, uh, of Harvard University uh, of course, a month ago or so, she had some controversial comments before Congress uh, that were she was supported by many members of the administration and faculty and staff uh, at Harvard. Uh, however, in the wake of that, a people looked into her background, found allegations of plagiarism um, that have now caused her to resign. We're going to talk about that, of course, more uh, later on in the show. Uh, Trump has said he's going to skip the CNN <clears throat> debate in Iowa to attend a Fox News town hall. Uh, as we've seen throughout the Republican primary, President Trump has not attended any of the Republican primary debates thus far uh, and has made it clear that he is going to do his own counter-programming for Republican debate. He had an interview with Tucker Carlson, next Republican debate. Uh, he found something else to do, and uh, now he's finding something else to do here. Uh, so we want to make sure that everyone understands what President Trump has going on instead of being at the debates. Uh, joining us, uh, of course, now we have to talk about good news. Joining us is Rev- Reverend Vicki Johnson, Pastor St. Thomas Lutheran Church in Chicago. Uh, Reverend Johnson, how are you this morning? You today. I'm outstanding. All right, give us some good news this morning, Reverend Johnson. Okay. Well, good morning. Good morning to all of the morning stars and friends. There is good news. I have found that God speaks and moves not only in cathedrals, temples, temples, chapels, mosques, synagogues, shrines, and sanctuaries. God speaks and moves all around us in big and small ways. Last week, while watching a television commercial, I don't recall the product they were pitching, but God spoke to my heart in the closing line, which said, keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. Upon hearing this, my mind had a flashback to when I took the church youth department 
on a roller skating outing. I had taken them on many occasions and watched them, but this particular time, they convinced me to put on skates and get involved in the action. Mind you, I hadn't skated since I was a teen at the Hyde Park YMCA, and even then, I was never good. So here I am on skates, scared out of my wits. The kids hollered out encouraging words as they whizzed by. Come on, you can make it. Don't stop. Keep going. Well, 20 minutes later, I completed one lap around the rink and received a rousing ovation. I remember this occurrence so vividly because I was in a situation that I was uncomfortable with. I was doing something that I was not good at. But with the encouragement of the kids, I decided to keep moving forward. Upon entrance into this new year, I want to be your cheerleader today to encourage you to keep moving forward. You may be doing what you've always done and are a little weary. Keep moving forward. You might be embarking on a new venture and seem to have hit a brick wall already. Keep moving forward. Or all might be going well. Whatever the case, keep moving forward. It might take you longer, like me on skates. But if you keep moving forward, even with baby steps, you will reach your goal. In Isaiah, the 40th chapter in the 29th verse, it says, God gives power to the faint and to those who have no might. God increases strength. Keep moving forward. If you will do this, and I'm sure you will, then to me, that's good news. Thank you so much, Reverend Vicki Johnson, Pastor, St. Thomas Lutheran Church, Chicago, uh, for your good news moment of this morning, uh, January 3rd, 2024. As we enter this 20, uh, 2024 season, uh, that message of continuing to move forward, I think, is crucial for people to understand uh, and to keep in their hearts going into this new season. Really appreciate uh, you blessing with this moment of good news this morning uh, to start our days. Thank you so much, Reverend Johnson. You are welcome, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you also. Uh, And, of course, we have to talk about our Infection Prevention Minute uh, of this morning with Dr. Sheena Knighton, RN, nurse scientist, infection preventionist. Uh, Dr. Knighton, what is our infection prevention message for this morning? Good morning. It's just a reminder to people that Infection prevention and control still prevails, especially when we don't know what bugs we're among. Um, Even right now in my area, there's a nasty stomach virus that's going around that's impacting both adults and children. With viruses, of course, you cannot see them. Just like with bacteria, you cannot see it. So it's always better to stay prepared instead of having to get prepared. When you see someone that is complaining, saying it like, hey, my stomach is sick, I'm not feeling very well, 
it's being precautionary and not assuming that it's just an individual illness and something that's specifically tailored towards them, but understanding that when you are encountering someone with illness, to understand that it's transmissible and that you possibly can be encountering that same illness. It's almost as if when someone tells you that if a kid gets a cold and the adult gets pneumonia or gets the flu, it's understanding that, too, if you get a vir- like a viral infection or a stomach bug of any kind, it may not impact you how it impacted that individual. So it's reminding you to make sure that you are washing your hands. It's reminding you that when individuals appear to be sick around you, in terms of asking them, like, hey, you know, I know you really want to be here, but I think you should go home to get some rest. We want to keep everyone well. To say it in a respectful manner, that comes as a part of physically distancing or what we've known to be socially distancing. The other piece as well is that if you know that you need to be out in a public setting, such as a doctor's appointment because you need to be seen, or let's say you have to shop for yourself for groceries because maybe you don't have a caregiver yourself, it's important that you are practicing what is called source control. Source control means that you are the person that is wearing the mask because you are trying to control yourself as being the source of germs or the source of infections. Many people miss that during the pandemic or during COVID and saying, why do I have to wear a mask? Why do I have to wear a mask? Well, people didn't realize whether they were symptomatic or asymptomatic. They could have been the carrier and the person that could have been infecting others without a diagnosis or before a diagnosis. So it's understanding, again, physically distancing, making sure that you are wearing a mask if you are the source of germs. And then when you're talking about hand hygiene, remembering that there are three hands. There are your physical hands that you use, and then there's your cell phone, which I deem as being your third hand because it's in your hand so much. So with your physical hands, making sure that you are cleaning them 20 to 25 seconds, that you are scrubbing them, that you're remembering to get where the thumb meets the hand, that you remember jewelry can become very contaminated. So if you're wearing bracelets, if you're wearing watches, and if you're wearing rings, not thoroughly cleaning your jewelry means that you are harboring germs that can then be transmitted to that jewelry, that can then be transmitted to your face. Or it means that you are, your jewelry is a source of transmission of germs to others. When it comes to your phone, we set our phones down everywhere. You could be sitting it down on the table. You can be sitting it down on the grocery store counter. But when you put it back up to your face or when you're dialing it with your hands and they're unclean hands, it again then becomes a source for infection transmission and not prevention. So it's important to claim that at least once a day. 
Absolutely. And and so as we enter this uh, um, uh, this new year, I think a lot of people are uh, kind of of their, of their presumption and um, the many people around them kind of feel like the pandemic's over. Why do I still need to do these things? Uh, for those of us who listen to you and then have to convey this message to other people, how can we help people in our orbit understand the importance of still taking part of these public health uh, initiatives that started during the pandemic, but really started to kind of a tail since then? I start to remind them through reflection. And that's reminding them that during the time early on when we did not know what COVID was, when we knew that someone had passed away in Seattle, when we knew that people were getting ill in China, we implemented these practices because this is all that we had. And we saw that waves were decreasing in terms of us being able to slow the curve or slow things down. But when we started to think that just vaccines alone would cause COVID to go away, then that's where we became disappointed. We needed to understand that a lot of these mechanisms have to work together. And so I remind individuals, Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. And instead of thinking about infection prevention and control as a one-time practice, we should be thinking about how do we incorporate it into our daily lives. Bacteria, viruses, and fungus are things that we cannot visibly see with our eyes, but they're around us all the time. And with practical and mindful behavior, we can decrease the risk of being harmed by these organisms. An example would be when we're driving our cars, one of the things that I see people do is they'll, let's say, be on the run, and so they're eating on the go, and they may go through the drive through window, hand someone their card, get their card back, and then they're either digging in their bags or their french fries, or they're touching their steering wheel and still proceeding to eat, not recognizing that the germ transmission that occurs between the time that you would get that card, get your food, and get your beverage, and you driving in your car, you're not aware of all of the germs that you touched when you are not eating that are not on your steering wheel. So even something as simple as, saying to myself, what is it that I touch in my daily life that I use regularly but can harm me if it's filled with germs? A stairwell would be one of those things. A cell phone will be one of those things. When you think about living in an apartment building or community living, elevators would be one of those things. So it comes down to being mindful And if I had to educate anyone on what to do, it would say, what are your points of germs that you may come in contact with that others may come in contact with on a regular basis that you can prevent? Hand sanitizer or the washing of hands breaks that cycle of infection because then at that point, that friction and that removal of germs means that it decreases the risk of further transmission. 
And, and then finally, in this season, uh, people have been hit, been getting hit with this kind of double whammy of both the flu uh, and COVID uh, as those variants begin to work their way through. Uh, what are the, the steps people should take to perfect, protect themselves from both COVID and the flu uh, as they're working their way through our community concurrently? I think the biggest awareness is that we must understand that if your immune system is lowered because you have a cold, because you're stressed out, you are vulnerable to any of those things. And they are not, let's say, synonymous or they're not separate from one another in that because I get COVID, I can't get the flu. In fact, you being sick with COVID increases your risk of being sick with the flu or being sick with pneumonia or having that common cold or even to respiratory symptom virus if you're an older adult or a child that may be at risk. So it's really that reminder that the same practices that would keep you safe from COVID would be the same practices that would keep you safe from the flu. With the vaccines, it's understanding that the COVID-19 vaccine does not protect you from influenza. It's helping you to understand that if you got the influenza vaccine, it does not protect you from COVID. If you are an older adult or someone that is immunocompromised that's taking the pneumonia vaccine, the pneumonia vaccine will not protect you from COVID and it will not protect you from influenza. So it's really understanding that all of these bugs and all of these strains are different. And as a result of them being different, they will unfortunately mean that you are at risk for one or the other by having a compromised immune system. So those same infection prevention and control practices must be used, even with getting vaccinated, because, again, the vaccines will lower the severity of the illness but it will not stop transmission and it does not necessarily stop you from getting it. It may lower your severity of how sick you may be. But it's really, as you pointed out, in the season of where we're amongst all of these different cocktails and strains of germs, it's just knowing that infection prevention can help, but just because you have one of these things does not make you from exempt from getting another. In fact, it puts you at increased risk. And with that, how how can people work to uh, strengthen their immune systems? You talked a lot about the immunocompromised. Uh, what are some uh, just best practices uh, best practices people can use if they want to strengthen their immune system to uh, kind of build up for this season? Absolutely. So I'm going to give. Two tips, one being to look for foods that increase your T-cell count. Your T-cells are the things that fight against infections. So if you Google foods that increase my T-cell count, you'll see that it comes up with these nutrient-dense, a lot of citrus uh, foods, a lot of citrusy foods, um, foods that are high with zinc you'll start to see some of those foods come up. But it also means what foods, Googling also, what foods harm my T-cells and it's staying away from those foods. 
The other aspect is sugar. I know I've talked about this before, but it's reminding people that for every 75 grams of sugar that you take in, it lowers your immune system for five hours. If you have a bagel and a cup of coffee, that could be your 75 grams, depending on if you're eating it with cream cheese and jelly, and if you have sugar in your coffee. And if you're not finished with that, and let's say you consume sugar within that time, it's just understanding that you're at higher risk of lowering your immune system. And if it keeps adding up, you're at risk for getting sick. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Knighton, for, for all that information. I think it's crucial for us to understand. Uh, and these are the things that we have to do in our communities to keep ourselves safe. Thank you so much, Dr. Senior Knighton, uh, RN nurse specialist, infection preventionist, uh, for your pub, for our infection prevention moment. You're listening to WCPT 820 Chicago, uh, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, AM 950 Radio, St. Paul, Min- uh, Minneapolis, the voice of the progressive Minnesota attorney, Robert Patillo, sitting in for Cynthia Jetson, Cynthia Jetson, morning. Show. We'll be back after the break. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Welcome back. You're listening to the Santita Jackson Morning Show's attorney, Robert Petillo, sitting in for Santita Jackson on WCPT 820 Chicago, the nation's largest progressive talk uh, radio station, as well as AM 950 AM, Minneapolis, St. Paul, the voice of progressive Minnesota. Of course, call in 773-763-WCPT. That's 773-763-9278. And uh, we have to talk about this story uh, out of Harvard University. It has been building for the course of the last month. Uh, out of Cambridge, the shortest tenure of a Harvard president is over after Dr. Claudine Gay stepped down. Her resignation coming following a December field of scrutiny over how she handled anti-Semitism on campus and allegations of plagiarism. In a statement, Gay said, it has become clear that it is in the best interest of Harvard for me to resign so the community can navigate this moment of extraordinary challenge uh, with a focus on the institution rather than the individual. She said in a statement she thought it was the right thing for the university to move forward. She is, uh, and one Harvard student said she is probably right. Uh, Gay took the reins a little more than six months ago, becoming the first black president in the school's history. Uh, and as a result, we have seen uh, there's been a, a lot of scrutiny on uh, Ivy League institutions, uh, particularly by conservatives who have uh, claimed that they have been indoctrinating the youth into a left-wing agenda. Uh, so uh, when this the attacks happened on October the 7th in Israel, uh, there was a lot of focus put on the pro-Palestinian protests taking place across the country, uh, particularly on college campuses. Uh, as a result, congressional hearings were called by conservatives where they questioned the presidents of 
of MIT, of Harvard, of other Ivy League institutions, and these presidents uh, were criticized for their responses um, for not being su- sufficiently um, pro-Israeli uh, enough for the claims that they were teaching pro-Hamas or pro-Palestinian uh, rhetoric to these students, uh, and that began this firestorm. We saw over a thousand teachers at Harvard University uh, sign a letter of support for President Gay, uh, saying that they want her to stay on. We saw uh, thousands of students say they wanted President Gay to stay on. Uh, but then, mysteriously, as soon as that uh, uh, happened, we saw a uh, uh, people start digging into her academic record. People start digging into her PhD uh, from decades ago and finding allegations of plagiarism. Now, it's interesting because when you normally talk about plagiarism, you're saying that somebody is taking the work of someone else and presenting it as their own. Uh, you know, Joe Biden got in trouble for plagiarism back in 1988 uh, for directly lifting speeches from other individuals. Uh, with Dr. Gay, it wasn't a question of whether or not she was simply lifting works from other individuals and passing it off on her own. Rather, it was a question of sloppy citations that they are calling plagiarism, um, that she was not the, the, the uh, work she was presenting. They're saying the citations were incorrect, and those were the claims of plagiarism against Claudine Gay, and that's been the basis of her resignation from office at Harvard University. Uh, as one professor at Harvard said, um, the mob was out for her. Uh, and it became very clear that no matter what, they were not going to allow this woman to work in peace uh, in order to guide the university she saw fit. Uh, and many academics have uh, voiced concern around this, uh, given that what does it say about freedom of speech on campus? What does it say about freedom of thought when it comes to administrators? Uh, does it, uh, do we all have to worry about what the political agenda is? Can we only talk about what's popular on com- college campuses now uh, and otherwise? you'll be removed or forced down from office. So joining me in this conversation to talk about this, we're being joined by Dr. Julianne Malveaux, economist, President Emeritus Bennett College, former Dean of Ethnic Studies, Cal State University, LA, and co-chair of Rainbow Push Itself Education Program, as well as Dwight McKee, social scientist, Dean of Studies, MAAFA Redemption Project, uh, New Mount Pilgrim MB Church. Thank both of you for joining me uh, this morning in this conversation. Dr. Malvo, of course, I want to start with you. What is your thoughts on the resignation of, of Dr. Gay from Harvard University? Well, I predicted as soon as this mess started that she was going to be under enormous scrutiny and that she wasn't going to be able to withstand it. Not because of anything wrong with her, but because your number one role as a college president, frankly, I mean, we act like it's, you know, intellectual, blah, blah, blah. It's raising money. That's your number one job. You've got to raise money. And if you can't raise money, you're ineffective. Um, usually a new president comes in and the community rallies around her. In other words, alums, you know, faculty, staff, students, uh, alums step up with money, uh, faculty with support, and the students with support. The students are a little bit less important here, but they're still important. But basically, a new president needs support. If they don't have it, they don't have anything. Um, Harvard did Dr. Gay a disservice in the way that they chose her. She's an excellent choice, and we all know that. But um, there's very little transparency 
around this election, and that probably hurt her. And then, of course, you know, let me let me not miss words. The white folks who don't believe in DEI were like, "Why? How do we get this black woman?" Well, she was a dean there for almost twenty years, so she had been on the faculty. Any deficiencies in her work and performance could have been vetted out long before uh, this mess came up. So we know that these are basically spotty uh, reactions. I'll tell you my own story, which I've shared with Santita and others. Um, I didn't get a PhD in June. I got it in September. I didn't get it in June because one, you know what, white men decided that one of my footnotes was wrong. You hear me? One of my footnotes was wrong. Now, there were like 10 ways this could have been resolved, including him passing me on and saying in the official document, change the footnote. Turned out the woman that I'd hired to type the dissertation had had a typo. So I, it was a journal that I cited. I said volume 12, and she put volume 14, just a slip of the finger. And he couldn't find what I cited, so he held up my doctorate. Well, it's okay. I was 26. I, I really didn't mind. Uh, I was very annoyed, but I didn't mind. Um, but this is a kind of academic bullcrap that happens very often, and people have discretion to say this is important or this is not important. Uh, Dr. Gay's case, I don't know how she went through all these years and suddenly they find these miscitations. So you have to say, what's race got to do with it? And that's, and that's where I am. Um, I don't think that you know she was ever embraced at Harvard. Otherwise, as soon as she came in, people would have started trying to raise, help her raise money. I don't think she was ever embraced. I think that they looked askance at the first black person to lead Harvard in X number of years. And uh, it, it, no, not X number of years, ever. I don't think that, I think a lot of people look askance at that. And you got that anti-DEI crowd out there circling that person who's like, it's probably lawsuits against anything that has to do with race. And um, here we have, I just have to commend the sister. I mean, I appreciate her. Uh, as a former college president, I appreciate her dignity and her courage. And I think that the whole thing went down the wrong way. But on the other hand, I, I did not think that after all has gone down, she would have been able to maintain the position. And I just enjoy and appreciate her outgoing statement, which really is full of grace and dignity. When she talks about not only this uh, attack on her, the accusation that she's anti-Semitic, which she is not, one day, Robert, we have to talk about how you can be anti-Israel policies and not be anti-Semitic. Because as soon as you say anything negative about Israel, you're anti-Semitic. And that's BS. That's utter BS. So, you know, she, those who are pro-Palestinian, like me, uh, have to avoid what I call the kryptonite, and it is kryptonite, of um, expressing ourselves fully about what has happened in the Middle East, and especially what has happened to Palestinian people. They're killing people. And... Um,
Uh, all right. And uh, Dwight McKee, I wanted to bring you in on this conversation also. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what does this mean to free speech on college campuses? This idea that uh, if you, uh, particularly as a university president, uh, if you don't support one political position or uh, or one foreign policy position or the, uh, or the other, uh, that your alumni stop giving money. I think something like a billion dollars in pledges were uh, pulled as uh, after this uh, congressional testimony. Uh, and then uh, thereafter, the university president has to resign. Uh, what does it say about free speech on college campuses when literally people can be removed from off or removed from their position just by not agreeing with what a majority opinion is? Well, I, I think I see it a, a little differently. Is that I think that free speech is at risk, always at risk, if you don't fight. I don't think free free speech is automatic. I don't think any rights and privileges are automatic. I think you have to fight for them. And I was highly disappointed that she didn't fight the good fight. I knew the women that I was raised around, the Willie Barrows, the Jackie Jacksons, the Lois McKees, the Vicki Johnsons, they would have fought. It would have been a battle. It would have been a humble. And they would have had to take them out kicking and screaming, particularly since she had the support of the students and she had the support of the faculty. It was a, and she had the, the support of the black community and much of the academic community around the country. And so she could have gone from a role model to an icon. I, I look at those folk in academia, like the Angela Davis's, like the Tony Morrison's who used their academic positions to fight the good fight. I look at people like like Ida B. Wells and uh, and Rosie Parks and those black heroines that we had historically. They would have seen the Fannie Lou Hamers. They would have seen it as an opportunity to personify uh, what free speech should have been because they would have played the the sacrificial role that projects that free speech is something that uh, the students and the faculty would have to fight for. I don't think money was an issue. I mean, people are hiding behind the money. But Harvard has an endowment of $50 billion. $50 billion. They have a larger endowment than most of the countries in the world. The interest from their endowment creates about $10 billion last year alone. And so money at an institution like Harvard, who's two, three, two, three hundred years old, uh, is not so much an issue. Some people stop giving, other people start giving. I think it's it was just it's a missed opportunity and a lost opportunity to have fought a good fight. She didn't fight when they went after Cornell. I think free speech uh, is so subjective. Because certain people who bring their own biases to this proposition did not agree with what she had to say. I think her obligation was to fight for the students so all of them would know they had the right to their own opinions. I think it was a missed opportunity. And Dr. Malvo, I want to circle back to you on the same point. Uh, what what is the? How do we fight for free speech on college campuses, which seems to be under attack? 
interesting, uh, Robert, to look at this case as a bellwether of other cases, especially given the way that black people have been treated on campuses throughout our history. You know, if you recall, um, and I know you do because you're such an excellent attorney, the many cases of higher in higher education where there's one, I can't call it out right now, where black people at a law school, I believe it was in Oklahoma, had to sit outside the classroom because white people did not want them in the classroom. Remember that case? Um, yeah, yeah, I did. So, and so there, there has never been the kind of support for black students that we are now seeing for Jewish students who say that they feel threatened, they feel threatened by speech. Uh, I would have been put out of school if, um, free, if, if we didn't have free speech. I had a sign on my dorm room that said, off the pig. Big old sign on the door that said, off the pig. And the white girls complained. But they didn't make me take it down. I was counseled about the inappropriateness of my sign, but they didn't make me take it down. Eventually, I got tired of it, so I took it down. <laughs> you know, but young people basically are passionate and focused, and we need to think about that. I somewhat agree with Dwight and somewhat disagree, but that would be our usual situation. Um, <laughs> I think that Dr. Gay could have fought. If it were me, I would have fought. I would have made the MS fire me uh, rather than step down. But I think that what she said was right for her. In other words, she had become the issue, and Harvard is bigger than the issue. So I, I, I'd like to, again, I compliment her elegance and the way that she managed this, and I fully regret the fact that she felt that she needed to step down. But see, Dwight, everybody ain't a fighter. You know, that's why we all have different roles. God gives us different roles. Everybody ain't a fighter. I don't think that was ever in her DNA to scrap about this. Um, what is going to be interesting is to see what happens to the sister at MIT, which, of course, is my alma mater, uh, their grad school. The MIT board has said they stand behind her. I have a friend um, who used to be on the board who says she's stepping down. MIT stands behind her. I appreciate that. But different strokes for different folks. What I, at the end of the day, the whole, there, there are three issues here. One is the whole issue of free speech and who gets to say what. Two is the issue of race and how black women in particular, like Malcolm said, the most neglected, um, how black women are treated. And three is the congressional oversight that is out of order, out of line, and out of control. Congress does not have any business in it. You know, I found that to be interesting, Dwight, uh, to Dr. Bravo's point about Congress's interest in this. Uh, what exactly was Congress investigating? Uh, we've seen plenty of situations where African-American students did not feel safe or comfortable. Where you had, uh, you know, if you look at uh, videos of an old Miss game from the 1950s, it's just 80,000 people swinging Confederate flags at folks, and there was no congressional investigation to that. Uh, what is this accusation that Jewish students around the country did not 
not feel safe because there were pro-Palestinian protests uh, taking place. There's a humongous difference between supporting the Palestinian people. I think nearly 25,000 have been killed at this point in time. Uh, uh, nearly 5,000 children have been killed. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people displaced. There's a big difference between saying we want to support those people as being human beings and being anti-Semitic. How have we allowed these these kind of talking points of propaganda to conflate the two to the point that being uh, that simply giving a voice to Palestinian students is a danger to Jewish students? Because it was it did what it was designed to do. It was designed to intimidate. It was designed to silence. There is a political constituency with a lot of money and power that makes sure in any discipline, not just academia, but it, whether it's news or politics or, or, or science, that they uh, that you have to toe the party line. And the party line is that anybody who dis- disagrees with them on the issue of Israel, on the issue of Zionism, not even uh, Zionism, has to be assaulted, has to be silenced. And that's why I say if that her fight was not a personal fight, her fight was a fight for the purposes of showing the students that they have the right to their own opinion and they do not have to uh, support the party line. And that, 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 that even though many of them are become uh, in jeopardy of career or, 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 uh, academic uh, elevation that they as citizens and as good uh, students in universities, which means that they, universities by definition mean that you have universal views, that they have an almost an obligation for the sake of democracy to fight. The double standard alone would have made me fight. I mean, for example, uh, Jim Harbaugh was suspended three weeks ago for cheating. He was was convicted of cheating and suspended for three games. And yet he coached the game yesterday and is in the national championship next week. He's a white man convicted of cheating. She is an academic who was never convicted of cheating. It was a, a like you say, a issue of citations. It, 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 she did the research. She just didn't make the right citations, and they forced her out. I just think that 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 when this country, which is projected to be so liberal and so democratic. There's a double standard that really, if you don't uh, submit to the party line, that you're at risk. The hypocrisy is astounding. And all hypocrisy should met with, with confrontation. We have to always fight, fight, fight.
And, and Dr. Malvo, before we run out of time, you know, we saw this during the Vietnam War, where if the academic institutions did not support the U.S. government's uh, line on the Vietnam War, um, people were criticized, uh, people, administrators were removed, they went before Congress, etc. We saw this during the, the Communist Scare, the Red Scare. Uh, we saw this during the uh, wars in, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, that if there were protests and people were not supporting the war, then they were deemed to be uh, anti American. What, what does it mean when we start curtailing and shutting down speech on college campuses and how it will, will affect this next generation of young people and activists? Well, you know, college campuses are supposed to be a culture of ideas. Many young people come to campuses uh, unfinished, if you will, uh, searching. And I think that what we're doing at some level is suppressing the search. When you say that, you know, you can't support you know, Gaza, you must support Israel. You're suppressing the exploration that is supposed to be a key part of campus life. And so when we look at that, what we have to say is this the, this whole thing, first of all, that hearing was out of order, out of line, and out of control. Uh, that back in, uh, the, or was it December 7th or 8th, with a Sephardic grilling those presidents and grilling uh, Dr. Gay with a special hostility. It was out of order, out of line, and out of control. That's number one. Number two, we have to we have to have free speech on campus. We've had racist clan members and others come to campuses to speak. We don't like it, but hey, they have something to say. We have the right to push back on it. So why can people not say anything about what's happening in Israel that's not embracing the uh apartheid leader, Netanyahu. You know, why can't that happen? Now, everybody, Robert, as you know, we always obligatorily say we oppose what happened on October 7th. And we do. But we have to put that in context. So that's all that Dr. Gay and the others are saying. Put it in context. October 7th didn't come out the air. It came because of the way Palestinians have been treated by Israel for the last 50 years. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bob Bowen, Dwight McKeegan, for sticking around with us. Uh, after the break, we're going to be coming back with legal Q&A with CK as well as headlines. You're listening to uh, the St. Hugh Jackson Morning Show. Attorney Robert Patel sitting in this morning. Uh, CPT 820 Chicago, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, AM 950 Radio, Minneapolis-St. Paul, the voice of progressive Minnesota. We'll be back after the break. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Welcome back to the Santita Jackson Morning Show. This is Attorney Robert Patel sitting in for Santita Jackson uh, on WCPT 820 Chicago, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, as well as AM 950 Radio, Minneapolis, St. Paul, the voice of progressive Minneapolis. Uh, let's go to some headlines. Of course, we got to hit some weather in Minneapolis. Today it's going to be 31 degrees, low of 17 degrees. Uh, humidity, zero chance precipitation, which is always a good thing, 5% humidity. Uh, Chicago is going to be 35 degrees today, low 
low 32, 0% precipitation, 67 degrees, uh, 12 mile per hour wind. Uh, news and headlines of sports. We had the um, Minneapolis Flames fend off the wild, or sorry, the Calgary Flames fend off the Minnesota Wild, 3-1 to one, handing Minnesota their third consecutive loss. Uh, Chicago Blackhawks suffer another mid-game injury uh, in a shootout with the Predators as they lose to the Predators last night. Uh, number nine, Illinois routes Northwestern. Uh, DePaul uh, has no answers to number four, uh, UConn. Uh, some sports out of the Midwest going to headlines. Uh, of course, we have the situation going on where uh, senior Hamas leader was killed in Beirut by in a blast. Uh, uh, Israel is not taking credit for the attack against the Hamas leader. Uh, however, many people believe that it was a Israeli airstrike or other forces that caused uh, the killing of that uh, uh, leader of Hamas. And of course, we are still working towards the idea as the United States put it in the United Nations, working towards a framework for an idea of a ceasefire. Uh, though many people uh, across the entire globe have been calling for a ceasefire for many months, uh, that transitions us into the uh, conversation we've had in the first hour with uh, Dr. Dwight McKee and Dr. Julia Malveaux about Harvard professor Dr. Claudia Gray uh, being forced to step down uh, from president of, the, of Harvard University. Uh, they're going to continue this conversation with legal Q&A with C.K., uh, with attorney C.K. Hoffler. C.K., how are you doing this morning? Good morning, Robert. I'm doing well. I feel blessed. I feel blessed. Well, I am blessed to be able to have this conversation with you. So uh, with that, I'm going to hand the converse, uh, hand things over to you for legal Q&A with C.K. Uh, and what are the legal ramifications regarding Dr. Uh, Gay stepping down and kind of this guy idea around um, college campuses and free speech being curtailed? What can students do legally if they feel that their rights to freedom of speech are being uh, are being pushed back against uh, by university policy? So I'm going to hand the ball off to you uh, for this conversation. Well, thank you, Robert. And, you know, what I will say is this. First of all, I have to say to um, Dr. Claudine Gay, um, I listened intently to her comments at the congressional hearings. I thought she and the other two college presidents, quite frankly, did a magnificent job at addressing very difficult issues, very difficult issues. So I'm not critical at all of what Dr. Gay has done and has said in terms of defending her position, defending her actions while being president of Harvard University. I mean, it took, uh, you know, I don't know, 300 plus years for her to be, for an African-American woman to ascend to the top position at Harvard. And that's, it took a long time. And it's very unfortunate. It's very unfortunate that her tenure has ended in this way. We're told that she resigned. We're told that her faculty supported her. And I say we're told because I'm not there. So when I look at the legal ramifications, when I examine and analyze some of the legal issues associated with what's happened to her, we are just, I'm going based on what's readily available in the media and other sources that I have at my disposal that, that are perhaps at Harvard or that know her, that know a little bit about a bit about the situation. But I just want to be clear, I'm not, I'm not representing her. I do employment law. That's one of my practice areas. And so that's why there are a lot of issues that are circulating legal questions that I have. Firstly, she resigned. And it is my understanding that when she met with the equivalent of the Board of Governors or the governing um, 
board at Harvard, they determined, she determined that it was in the best interest of the institution for her to resign. We know that following her statements, when there were students that were protesting, expressing their First Amendment rights, and again, First Amendment does not guarantee a pass for violence, but the First Amendment does, on the, on the Constitution, guarantee freedom of speech. So ostensibly, these students were expressing themselves over the, the absolutely devastating war in Gaza. No matter what side you fall on, everyone agrees that it's devastating. And no one, I, I certainly am not condoning anti-Semitism or Islamophobia. Not at all. I think that when you're on a college campus, particularly these Ivy League campuses, which is where I, I went to college and Ivy League school as well, you do, the, 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 the campuses are very, very politicized, like all college campuses, I believe. And students, that's the time when you express yourself on college campuses. So that a college president took the position to protect freedom of speech of all students, not just some students, but all students, to me, is not objectionable as a lawyer when I look at that. When I look at the issue of freedom of speech, when you're on a college campus, you are there to protect, to lead the campus, which is comprised of students from different countries. When there is a war that is, that is highly charged, like the war in Gaza, when there are people who feel very passionately about this issue on both sides, where there are congressional hearings, where there are people who have been ostracized and be, being accused of certain things because of taking a position as a college campus president, you're in the unenviable position of having to really stand up to protect the rights of all students. And for that, people labeled, labeled her and criticized her and called her uh, anti-Semitic and said that her comments were, were an example of anti-Semitism and how they shouldn't be condoned, how she needs to step down. All of this way before she stepped down. And of course, that was a subject of, of um, the congressional hearings, as that was one of the issues that was raised with her and the other two college presidents. So her deciding to resign, if indeed it was a joint decision for the benefit of the college, that's her decision legally, you know, and, and, and was she constructively terminated? What is constructive termination? Well, she's still at the college. She's still going to be a professor there. So technically she was not terminated. Was she asked to step down? I don't know if she was asked to step down. When the public statement is that they reached a decision that it was in the best interest of the school, that tells me not per se asked to step down. Does she feel pressure to step down? Um, I would say probably yes, because not only were the allegations circulating that she was a, um, anti-Semitic and didn't handle um, the freedom of speech issue appropriately on Harvard campus, which, as I said, my personal view is I think that she handled it appropriately. But also there were mounting questions um, surrounding plagiarism of her thesis of work that she's done um, as, a, as when she was um, getting her Ph.D. and at other stages because she's a widely published person. So um, based on the review of her work by, you know, journalists, by um, others, it was determined that there were some minor infractions, but the college, um, Harvard, took the position that none of that rose to the level where she should be terminated based on plagiarism and where, where she has, had, in fact, plagiarized. She, um, there should have been some uh, 
greater greater attention paid to certain quotations. There were quotations that were missing, but she herself submitted and encouraged and, and in fact, um, strongly encouraged people to review her work, and they did. And they found some smaller issues, as I understand it, which she promptly corrected. So, again, the question is, are those the types are those instances the types of things that would lead to under normal circumstances the termination or the resignation of the college president? Probably not. But when it's when the plagiarism allegations and the small infractions that they discovered are put in the context of the Gaza conflict and the freedom of speech issue, the congressional hearings, and by the way, the fact that she's a black woman, then all of a sudden we understand the resignation. That's what it is, in my impression. Those are the legal issues. Is, does she have a cause of action against the university? Probably not, because she probably reached an agreement, I would imagine, that she reached some type of an agreement, a settlement agreement, relative to her employment at, at, at Harvard. She's going to stay on as a faculty member. She certainly has earned that title. Um, she's earned that right. And so I don't see, based on the information that I have readily available, that she has a cause of action against the um, university. And I would imagine if she did, whatever was negotiated in terms of her resignation, all of that would have been addressed in settlement documents or her resignation letter and everything leading up to that. Because again, she's a very sophisticated professional. She was, she was sophisticated and seasoned and sanguine enough to become president of Harvard. I can't imagine she didn't have legal counsel advising her, but but I'd love to hear from Dr. Julianne Malveaux, because Dr. Malveaux, you've been in her shoes. You sat where she sits. You have also had the same type of educational background that she's had. You have been, as a, as a college president, you know what it is, former college president and, and where you stand right now. Um, you, you know what it is to be on the hot seat, if you will, um, and, to, and to address First Amendment issues. And so I'd love to hear, Dr. Malvo, what your take is on, on um, this whole very, very tragic issue involving Dr. Gay. Well, you know, CK, I have much empathy for her, much admiration for her. I was dancing in the streets when she was selected first black president at Harvard University. And at the same time, I was, my joy was tempered by the fact that I knew that she was going to be a target. Um, she was uh, selected at the same time that the Supreme Court ruled against affirmative action. And I felt like, okay, the white folks don't come for her. And indeed, that guy at Blum, those group of uh, those conservatives who are against DEI, they've been gunning for her since she was selected um, because they always thought there was a good white man somewhere who should have had a position. I would be myself, and I, I would have fought. I would not have resigned. I would have made them fire me. But that's just because, you know, I'm a street fighter. I tell people all the time, you can call me Dr. Malvo or you can call me Dr. Hoodrat, because a hoodrat in me will come out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, okay. <laughs> will, you, will you come my way? So I, I would I'd have, I'd have made him fire me. But I think that she is such a woman of dignity and presence that she did not want to put the university at the crosshairs. Uh, as I said, the previous, your, your number one job, people always talk about college presidents and we're supposed to be so erudite and 
intellectual and brilliant. Bottom line is you got to raise money. That's the bottom line. And although Harvard has more money than God, the president is going to be judged by how much money she or he raises. And the fact is that she can't raise a penny in this environment. Um, Dwight said in the past half hour that people come, people go, donors come, donors go. But when you have these Harvard, you know, hedge fund kids who are coming with hundreds of millions, you don't want to lose that. And so I didn't think that she was going to be able to hold on. But I feel very badly for her, and I feel badly for Harvard, because basically the board, the MIT board, has um, circled around Sally Cornbluff and said, uh-uh, don't touch her. And so she is not, she won't be stepping down. The MIT board has said they support her. The Harvard board did not say that. And I think Dr. Gay, as she mentioned in her uh, closing uh, remarks as she stepped down, there were a couple things. One was just the reputation, her reputation, and the reputation of the university. But then, CK, the other thing was the death threat she's been getting and that her family mm-hmm. has been getting. And nobody wants that. Um, the security that she's going to need, nobody wants that. She had the support of the faculty and the students. And, um, you know, universities are cauldrons of ideas, and they should always be cauldrons of ideas. And they should always be, you know, open exchange of ideas. And unfortunately for many people, for us, indeed, we are folks in the public eye, you, me, Robert, Dwight. Um, When we say something that is not seen as sufficiently supportive of Israel, suddenly we're anti-Semitic. But can we be critical of Israel and not be anti-Semitic? I think so. But talking about this in this context is like kryptonite. As soon as you say something that they don't like, and they could be whomever, you basically you're canceled. Um, I lost I lost a, a speaking engagement actually very recently uh, from some young Jewish child who basically asked me a couple questions. I said, "She said, I don't think you're right for this opportunity." I'm like, "All right." That's fine, um, because I, I, you cannot make chicken salad out of chicken spit, and you can't cut and paste yourself to fit other people's ideas. So, yeah, I'm going to miss the money, but I ain't going to miss it that much, because if I had to come in and be fake Jake, it's not going to turn out right. And that's, I think, Dr. Gay decided, I just, this is, I just don't need this. She's going to stay on the faculty from what I understand, she's going to keep her president's salary, which is significantly higher than her faculty salary was. Uh, that's what I understand. I like you, I don't know. I do know that many of the black alums are very disturbed about all of this and that some of them are withdrawing their pledges and their um, giving because of what's happened to Dr. Gay. So it does go both ways, but, you know, nobody can stomp with a, hundred million dollar funder. So she has a right to free speech, but free speech is always contextual. And that's what she said at the congressional hearing. Free speech is contextual. You have to put it into context. What does from the river to the sea mean? To Jewish people, it means they're being exterminated. To Palestinians, it means that they're being freed. It doesn't, from the river to the sea, from what I understand, doesn't mean kill the Jews. You know, it means 
Calify will be free from the river to the sea. What's wrong with that? And, and Santita, well, I wanted to bring uh, I wanted to bring in uh, Aaron Conley and also Dr. David Gibson into the conversation. Aaron Conley, uh, Aaron Conley, Covenant Strategies Attorney, uh, Dr. David Gibson, Professor of History, University of Arizona, uh, also joining the conversation. I'll give the ball back to you, Santita. Uh, to want to bring them into the conversation. Okay, and it's and I love being called Santita, but it's CK. Because oh, no one can say I'm leading okay. so many things at once. Okay, I know. I'm surprised I, I didn't. Call, let me tell you. I'm surprised Robert, I didn't call you Doctor Gay. Robert, that's called stop multitasking <laughs> and focus, brother. <laughs> no, but but I say this. Look, there's only one Santita, and she's magnificent and spectacular at what she does. But I'm so honored to be called Santita. So thank you, Robert. But Erin um, Connolly, I always say she's my sister from another mother. I think Santita claims you as her sister from another mother, too. But from Covenant Strategy. <laughs> I'm <strategies>, so lucky. <laughs> well, Erin, what do you say about this? I mean, this is, this is tragic. <laughs> For me, it's not a question of what side you are on this issue. I think we can, I'd like to, when looking at legal issues, this legal issue, remove the political discussion, even though the political discussion is driving this. But I'd like to remove it and focus on the legal questions and how tragic, quite frankly, this is. And I know Dr. Malvo would have fought this to the bitter end and forced them to terminate her. But, you know, Dr. Gay felt that this was what was best for the university. And, and I do understand and I do know a lot of um, graduates, African-American and minority graduates from Harvard who are up in arms. And yes, are withdrawing their support from Harvard because they felt that it was based on the, even though the faculty did support her, and even though the board said they supported her, ultimately, the lack of support of this um, president, who everybody perceived as extraordinary, um, even during these very troubled times on this issue, they just felt that they couldn't support their alma mater for the decision to um, allow her to resign or to, to encourage the resignation. But, Ann, what do you say about this? Well, this was a big discussion in our house uh, yesterday. I have a stepdaughter who's 18 and attends another Ivy League institution and, you know, um, was considering Harvard. Um, she's a very bright young woman and um, was is really taking her education seriously. And one of the things she said was, this is just really going to dilute the student population of folks who want to apply to Harvard moving forward, especially women of color. Right. And she is a young uh, Native American woman finding her her voice in a, a very uh, traditional um, institutional education system. You know, CK, you understand as a as a graduate from an Ivy League institution that that there's a lot of differences. And for someone who is a first generation into that um, into that uh, space making sure that you're in the right type of environment to support you is crucial for these young people. They're thoughtful about it. So despite with this political mob, which is really who is putting this pressure on and mm-hmm. since mm-hmm. her, her congressional testimony, we've seen that we've seen this mob come for her in a way that is not the same for either university presidents who are male and white, or even um, women who are white, right? The, the intensity 
the vitriol, as you mentioned, the death threats. I think uh, she did a, a reasonable cost-benefit analysis of what is good for her and her family, what is good for the future of her career, and ultimately, really, what is good for the university. She took that seriously here. Um, and unfortunately, the board wasn't able to, to generate enough support and probably behind the scenes, as you know, the endowment process and the fight for these these legacy funds are, are a big deal, even in these rich institutions like like Harvard and other Ivy League institutions. So what it says is that those donors, those supporters of Harvard who are putting these endowments into place and donating millions of dollars, have different values than really where the faculty and student body lie. So I think students who are, are looking at investing hundreds of thousands of dollars um, into their education are taking are really going to take a hard look at that. And we know, we all know on, uh, on this panel that diversity makes us better, especially in leadership positions, right? Um, there's many attorneys on here. How many of your professors looked like you going to law school? Many did not look like me or were people of color and seeing yourself in your leadership and your your professors and the president of your university is motivating and powerful and when we see people torn down it it really is 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 sad and i I think it'll be interesting to see how the other ivy league institutions step up protection of their professors their leadership and really focus on strengthening um, frankly, the the support mechanisms that have to go into place to adequately battle these political mobs that come for folks online and in person and with these intimidation tactics, right? What can we do for the next Dr. Gay to support them so they don't feel like this mob is winning, right? That that That's terrifying. And this is a, a, a terrible part of our American history, right? This echoes of McCarthyism and... Um, you know, that trend is troubling and we've, we've seen it building and building. So I'm, I'm hoping that, that we can kind of pump the brakes on the bigger trend of, of these attacks on especially women of color in higher education. Now, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's unprecedented. We see um, a president, an African-American woman who is the president of Smith College. She's the second African-American woman who's president of Smith. We now have a, the first African-American president of Mount Holyoke. Um, and, and so we see that in the Ivies, if you will, whether women's college or, or other colleges, this was the first time that we were seeing a strong presence of black women in leadership. So it's very unfortunate that this has happened to, um, you know, Dr. Gay, just as you said, Erin, it, it reverberates on so many levels. It has an impact on so many people, um, both seen and unseen. But Dr. Gibb, um, as a professor, I'd love to hear your perspective on this. I mean, I think a lot of issues might be legal issues, but quite frankly, they're more policy issues, they're more political issues, they're more, um, you know, society issues. But I hear the music, so I guess we're going to take a break. But when we come back from break, we'd love to hear Dr. Gibbs' perspective. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Welcome 
Welcome back. You're listening to the Santita Jetson Morning Show. Attorney Robert Patillo sitting in for Santita Jetson on WCPT 820 Chicago, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, as well as AM 950 Radio, Minneapolis-St. Paul, the voice of progressive Minnesota. Uh, of course, we're doing Wednesday, so it's legal Q&A with CK. CK's being joined by Dr. Julianne Malveaux, economist, president, emeritus of Bennett College, as well as Dr. Dwight McKee, social scientist, dean of studies, MAAFA Redemption Project, as well as attorney Aaron Colony, covenant strategies as well as Dr. David Gibbs, professor of history, University of Arizona, and CK, I'm going to hand the ball back over to you for this conversation on Claudia Gay, the now former president of Harvard University, forced to resign uh, after being accused of anti-Semitism and plagiarism. Um, What are the legal ramifications for this? Will there be defamation suits for people in the media? Uh, CK, I'm going to hand the, the ball back off to you. Well, you know, before the break, Robert, thank you for that. I mean, before the break, um, I was asking Dr. Gibbs to see, um, because I'd love to hear his perspective. When you are not in on a university campus, you're not in academics, you're not a professor and all of that, you have a perspective, particularly as a lawyer. You know, Robert, we're lawyers. Aaron's a lawyer. We have a perspective on how we look at things. But when you have great social scientists like um, Dwight McKee and great professors um, and great um, people who have served as college presidents like Dr. Julianne Malveaux, and, and you have Dr. Gibbs, I think you come at it from a different angle. So we'd love to hear, Dr. Gibbs, what your perspective is on this situation with Dr. Gibbs. Uh, thank you. Um, you know, as, as I would see it, the main issue was that is, the Israel lobby wanted a win, and they got a win. Um, uh, the Israel lobby has put forth the pro- a proposition that there's a massive anti-Semitism crisis or, sorry, on campus, we regularly have mobs of people walking up and down campuses calling for deaths to the Jews. It's a complete fabrication. I, well, I don't want to say complete fabrication. There may be some instances here and there. But, look, I've never seen anything like that on my campus, and I very seriously doubt that happens with regularity at Harvard or, or MIT or Penn or, frankly, anywhere else in the United States. I'm, I'm sure there are some instances of anti-Semitism uh, and there probably has been a rise of that now with the war in Gaza, as there has been also a rise of anti-Arab sentiment. Uh, I would expect probably more of the latter. Uh, there's been both, uh, given the fact that this is, you know, an Arab Arab-Jewish war to some extent. Um, it's not. It's, it's it's unfortunate, but it's not surprising. One should condemn both, of course. One should very definitely condemn both. But the idea that there's a crisis of this and that people are regularly calling for genocide is fabricated. As far as I can tell, I've not seen a single well-documented case of a crowd of people at a college campus anywhere in the United States calling for death to the Jews. One reads about this as if it's happening with regularity, and it's it's just made up, as far as I can tell. Um, It's just uh, a a fairy tale, uh, like the Tooth Fairy or something, that they're telling at congressional hearings. The Republican Party, for reasons that are beyond me, has, has embraced this. There are a few exceptions, by the way, but the Republican Party has, on a whole, embraced this idea. The Democrats, to a limited extent, have embraced it as well, not quite with as much enthusiasm. And I think that what they wanted to do here is to um, humiliate these college presidents, and um, in this case, well, get them fired. They've gotten too fired. Now that maybe they'll try for the MIT president as well. Um, you know, I think that the issue of the plagiarism is that if you're not a controversial person, nobody goes into your scholarship and looks at your footnotes and looks at your citations. That only happens if you're controversial. And, um, you know, um, 
I, I don't think Claudine Gay, by my understanding, is, is a particularly controversial person in general, but she was put at the center of this issue, and she had to defend her institutions against claims that there's this massive anti-Semitism crisis at Harvard. And in the process of doing so, she became a target. And so I think that's what's going on here. I mean, my understanding is she did actually, there were flaws in her scholarship, but there were, I, nobody would have ever noticed that if she hadn't, be, if, if this issue hadn't arisen and people put her entire writings under a microscope, which is what they did. And so, um, you know, I think the most unfortunate thing about this is it's going to be used to vindicate the idea that is essentially a myth. That there's this, you know, and although this is the key point, as I would see it, is that what the Israel lobby wants to do is to equate all criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism, to define it quite literally as anti-Semitism. And the phrase, from the river to the sea, which is, in my view, a harmless phrase politically. I mean, you may disagree with it, all right? Uh, but it's, in my view, a harmless phrase. There's nothing anti-Semitic about it, as far as I can tell. They want to define that as anti-Semitic. And, um, you know, it's people who call for the victory of the Israeli army, which has so far killed 22,000 people in Gaza, most of them civilian, including, I believe, 8,000 children. That's not considered objectionable um, by the Israel lobby. That's considered a good thing. And so what they're trying to do is uh, essentially not just restrict free speech on campus, but to restrict it completely to one side, that the only side that should have voice is the pro-Israel side. That's the position of the Israel lobby. Let me say, I'm not that shocked by that, because it's, we're talking here about the Israel lobby. But what's happening here is they want to dominate the national discourse um, with that perspective and to define everybody who disagrees with them as engaging in hate speech. And unfortunately, what has happened at Harvard will probably accelerate those trends, uh, which I think is a bad thing. We need an adult discussion on U.S. policy toward Israel and toward Gaza. And we need also an adult discussion about what's going on in Ukraine. And we can't have those adult discussions in situations where we do not have open speech. Um, and that is not happening. That's being restricted. And with that, I think it was very uh, interesting and very telling that we, when, you're, when you shut these things down, when you make it difficult for individuals uh, to have these open dialogues, it almost creates this underground of thought where people have to start speaking in whispers, where people start, uh, and that's where conspiracies start working their way in. So yeah. as opposed to uh, uh, breaking us free and getting to a place of truth, we start shutting down true speech. This is what metastasizes into stereotypes, uh, uh, into conspiracies, uh, into this almost all-seeing hand that people create because you can't have an open dialogue about that. Aaron, I wanted to, to pull you back in. Uh, where does free speech on college campuses go from here? Uh, whether we lose power or not. The utility is not through our generous does. All right, I'm not sure if Aaron can hear me. Uh, Dwight, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, Dwight, yeah, so just for you, where where does free speech on college campuses go from here when a college president can be forced to resign uh, because of not, I guess, condemning uh, students expressing themselves and expressing their opposition to a war? Well, where it goes depends on how we deal with it, is that if we subject ourselves to the notion that we don't have the, the right to fight back, then we submit ourselves to the the attitudes and the power of 
people who are in place who can demand your silence while they while they themselves have the right to speech. I mean, and that's why I said for me it was a lost opportunity, is that we need people, I think, like Malvo, who was a combination of academic and gangster, who I knew would not have taken that. And we could have really... I'm sorry. I should be on mute. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, but he, but you're right. You're right. I don't play. I flunked recess when I was in kindergarten because I don't play. Yeah, so we could have built a movement around that attitude. You, it, Without somebody who is willing to take the, 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 the be in the center of the, uh, the, 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 the fight that we can build around, then you you sublet your freedoms to the power structure that who is set up to intimidate you and to get you off of you know off off the dime. So I think that that freedom and democracy is most at risk if we do if we're not willing to jump in the middle even at our even if we are not temperamentally designed to do so that there's a moral obligation that at your own uh, risk to jump in the middle of the fight. I think of Rosie Parks, who I'm sure really would have rather gone home that day and relaxed and, you know, got some tea and some lemonade and cooled out that day. But she saw it as a moral obligation to raise the issue of discrimination that Dr. King then were able to build a movement around and to confront the evils of segregation. And I, I, I see it again as a, a lost opportunity. Uh, even though, like, temperamentally she may not have been set up for it, I think that she had a moral obligation as a chief academic to jump in the middle of the fray, to declare war on those who declared war on her, and to give those in opposition a symbol to build around, unlike Angela Davis did when she was an academic. And we built a, they built a movement around her uh, stance. There's a pure academic, actually, uh, even though, even as, as um, uh, those who came out of the movement in the 60s and the 70s to Diane Nash's. Diane Nash was an academic uh, at, at Nashville who decided that she just won't take it no more and became a symbol, and we began to build, they built a movement around that, what she and Beville did. I just think it is, it's in the, the, the moral obligation and the temperament of the academics. They don't have to be pacifists. To be an academic again, they can be like Sister Malvo, who is, uh, as I said a little while ago, a combination of a academic and a gangster. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, academic and gangster. I love it. You know, um, you know, Dwight McKee. We, we really appreciate your insight, and and you know, this is truly a fight that we're going to see continue. I, there could be, it's not going to be in this case, but in some cases I could see where there might be a legal challenge or two. Definitely for Dr. Malbo, 
I would anticipate that Dr. Malvo would launch a legal challenge if she were in this position. But I don't think that Dr. Gay will do that. And based on what we're seeing, again, we, we, I, I agree with Dr. Mal- Malvo. We may never know the details based on Dr. Gay's choice. And by the way, this does involve her life, so she should have the final say on how things are handled. But I do think this type of punishment of college presidents for doing their job and being in the middle of a political war, if you will, um, does have legal ramifications. You know, Robert, you mentioned, you posed the question, was there defamation of character? Well, of course there was defamation of character in terms of Dr. Gay. She's a public figure. So I do know I've, I've litigated First Amendment issues. She's a public figure. There has to be malice, the acts being intentional. And I would dare say that there is malice and there are intentional acts for a defamation case. But I think given what we know about Dr. Gay, she just wants this unfortunate chapter behind her and to go on with her life. I mean, I think it's one thing to talk about um, getting death threats on a regular basis when you have family, when you have children, um, when you have just people around you who are important to you. It's another thing to live that. And many people have made the determination that they'd rather not fight that fight. Um, we know that, for instance, the election workers in Georgia that mm-hmm. were um, that have, were victorious over Rudy Giuliani, they had to actually leave the Atlanta metropolitan area because of the death threat, because of how their lives were altered as a result of them really just doing their job and being part of this uh, political quagmire and, and, and quicksand that many of us are finding ourselves in um, as we're going, as we're leading up to the presidential election. So, you know, it does beg the question, defamation, defamation of character. How far can people go in defaming college presidents for just doing their jobs without there being legal consequences? I mean, Aaron, what do you think about that as a lawyer and as someone who operates in the political space? Well, I mean, I, I thought the, the same thing going through this process yesterday when, you know, you have emotions about, um, you know, what this represents, right? And that it essentially gives, you know, some headlines this morning, again, were infuriating that this, the conservative mob sees this as a big win, that it's going to encourage more attacks on, on people that are unjustified, the allegations of play, plagiarism that turn out to be, you know, minor. Um, but the rhetoric now is cre- has created this evidence that was unverified, right? So it's, 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 it's pretty clear, again, from the facts of this case that she's staying on, she's keeping the salary, that she was not in the wrong in any way, right? And that had that been the case, she would have to be forced out completely and there would be a different process. There would be different statements um, and there would likely be, you know, a, a different path forward. So um, that's unfortunately how, how some of this works. Um, but my, my big concern from a political and a um, just from a rhetoric standpoint, how much this perceived victory is going to be amplified and then motivating for the forces who, who want to continue this, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to label it as, as anything to give it more power, to be honest, but there is a clear, um, there's a clear movement and it's a broader movement than uh, these one-off attacks. It's, it's clearly connected to attacking 
uh, DEI and um, thought leadership throughout the country. Um, so overall, that's that's the bigger concern in, in all of this is is the trend for me. Mm. I mean, those are those are very serious concerns because just think about it. This same analysis and rationale could be used for any college president, because on college campuses, there is a lot of dialogue about the war in Gaza. And again, any college president can be targeted in this exact analysis could be used to oust them. It's very, that's very, very interesting. We'll see if there are any other legal ramifications. Dr. Gibbs, are, on your college campus, um, do you think that, that this is, it doesn't sound like it, but you think that this approach at targeting people for political reasons and using this as a basis to oust them would resonate in your college campus? Oh, yes, this is happening nationally. Um, I don't want to give too many specifics here, in, you know, because that would involve naming individuals and so on, but there have definitely Certainly. been some significant attacks on people on the campus uh, who've spoken out on the issue of Israel-Palestine. And, um, you know, I think there's a, a distinction to be made, which is that it is very difficult to fire somebody with tenure. An untenured faculty member, that's a different story, but a tenured faculty member is very hard to fire. An administrator is somewhat easier to fire. A college president, for example, on attending at my university, it's, it's, it's a president, although, of course, there's always the issue of a lawsuit afterwards. That's always a possibility. But um, tenure, fortunately, has protected people for the most part. Uh, on the other hand, there are people who've held administrative positions uh, who can be fired quickly, just as uh, you know, Claudine Gay was fired. And those people are somewhat vulnerable. And as I said, untenured faculty are very vulnerable. Students certainly are vulnerable, uh, even more so. There's the possibility of being denied employment afterwards for things you said. Uh, that's a possibility. Um, overall, the tone of free speech on campus is by far the worst I've ever seen in my career. Um, much of it now, of course, is coming from the Israel lobby. I think much of it also from the war lobby uh, on Ukraine. It's very hard to speak out. Um, you know, so there's a whole range of issues that one really uh, has to be very careful in addressing these days. And again, it's, 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 I remember the war on terror, and it was during the war on terror about 20 years ago that things were very tense. And I remember I was careful what I said in the classroom, but this is much worse. This goes way beyond anything I've seen in my experience. Wow. Well, thank you for that perspective. And again, I didn't I didn't mean to put you on black Dr. Gibbs, but it's just that, you know, for those of us who are not on college campuses, um, we lose perspective. But one of the things that we do know in the practical world, we know that people are being ostracized and being threatened for taking a position um, about the war in Gaza. And, and that is most unfortunate, most unfortunate. Because it does, it does beg the question, is there really freedom of speech? Or is there only freedom of speech for some people? Or is there only freedom of speech for some issues in this country? And as we're approaching the presidential elections in 2024, it will be interesting to see if this issue is one that is discussed at all. It will be very, very interesting. So, you know, Robert, I think we have time for closing thoughts from everyone. I, I like the way you posed the question what what do we see going forward for college presidents in terms of freedom of speech? What can we count on seeing in the future 
And so maybe we can just do a round robin, um, Robert, of um, people's closing remarks. Absolutely, okay and 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 to your point, uh, Cinti, or sorry, CK, uh, I can't read this message from Santito. <laughs> this time I have an excuse. I read a message from Santita. Uh, this article from CBS where they say Harvard president run out by the mob, basically. And then if you look on Twitter, uh, on Twitter, Kanye was right is trending on Twitter right now because people are, again, when they feel that a process is not above board, they are beginning to run into this area of conspiracy theories where now people are agreeing with Kanye because they disagree with the decision on uh, Dr. Gay. Uh, We have time for final thoughts. CK, I'll I'll give the ball back to you for final thoughts from the entire panel. Okay, let's start with Dr. Julianne Malvo. And we only have, we've got five minutes for everyone. So maybe if everyone could just take a minute or a little less to give final thoughts. Dr. Malvo. Thank you, CK. Thank you, Robert. You're doing a great job as filling in for Santita. Let me say that college presidents are always walking a tightrope. We have, and I'm speaking from experience, you know, a faculty, staff, students, community, nation, and we're juggling all of that at all times. Uh, notoriety, does not necessarily help us when people go back and scrutinize your statements from the past. I came to Bennett and somebody unearthed, I wouldn't hide it, that I had been a baby panther. And that was like a headline in Greensboro for like weeks. She used to be a panther. And I hadn't even started yet. Uh, But that's the kind of scrutiny that we have, and we know that. At the same time, free speech is extraordinarily important, and we're always just juggling. What presidents need, and Reverend Jesse Jackson provided that for me uh, in helping me raise half a million dollars for scholarships. What presidents need is our community to surround them, embrace them, and lift them up. And that doesn't always happen. I'm not sure it happened at Harvard. I have a lot of questions about what happened at Harvard, but I just want to shout out Dr. Claudine Gay. No, she's not a street fighter like me. Everybody ain't. But she did a good job. She should have kept her job. And the fact that the Harvard Corporation did not fully support her is uh, basically to their detriment. Well, thank you. Attorney Aaron Connolly, your closing thoughts. Well, I, I echo the, the wisdom of Dr. Malvo, and, you know, I, I think it will be interesting to see how students react when they're back on campus and uh, after the break. It'll be interesting to see how the other institutions um, rally uh, around their faculty and leadership and create some really uh, public support to insulate folks from things like this. I think it's going to be necessary, and I think to Dr. Malvo's point, it's important that the community shows up to empower uh, their leadership and, and protect uh, the next generation of, of leadership who will be inspired, right? I think, I think we, we have to make sure that um, with the assaults on affirmative action, um, we're at a, a crucial time and our community needs to make sure that, that the right people are supported. Well, thank you. Well, we have to close right now, but very quickly, um, Dr. David Gibbs, and then I think we're out of time. Well, you know, again, the issue, um, I mean, that, that strikes me also is that, um, 
The U.S. now is uh, involved in uh, two major wars in the world, in Ukraine and Gaza. And um, the, the restrictions on freedom of speech apply to a significant degree to both of those wars. And we, it's in the interest of every American, everybody in the world, really, that we hear all sides on this and that we discuss this in an adult fashion. Um, the shutting down of speech is not only an uh, outrage in terms of a violation of the First Amendment uh, and a violation of common sense, but it also is dangerous in terms of it's led to a tremendous escalation of risk in the world. And, you know, college campuses should be a place in particular where you have open discussion of different points of view. And unfortunately, what we've seen with regard to the three college presidents and most recently with regard to Claudine Gay at Harvard is an effort to shut down this discussion and to only hear one point of view. That is the agenda here. And unfortunately, that's what's been happening to a significant degree. And that's that's very dangerous uh, for world security. And it really has to stop. Well, thank you so thanks. much. Go, go ahead, CK. I was okay, going to thank well, everybody for a great, great, great comment. <laughs> All right, I just want to thank everyone. I want to thank Dr. Gibbs. I want to thank Dr. Malvo. I want to thank Dr. Wright Keith. I want to thank uh, Attorney Aaron Connolly. I want to thank Attorney uh, C.K. Hoffler for uh, legal Q&A with C.K. And of course, I want to thank uh, Santita for letting me keep her seat warm. Uh, she, well, we'll bet tomorrow with Santita Jetson Morning Show. Thank you so much and have a great day. <laughs>